look, there's really no other way for me to say it. You're missing out. If you're not playing this, you're missing out. It's the free contests on the NBC Sports Predictor app. They've already handed out over $3 million in cash prizes, and there are tens of thousands more up for grabs this and every week. So get in on the action right now with the NBC Sports Predictor app powered by PointsBet. For the biggest names in sports talk, watch the NBC Sports Channel every weekday on Peacock. Featuring pro football talk, the Dan Patrick Show, the Ritz Eisen Show, and more. Streaming live for free on PeacockTV.com slash NBC Sports. Hello, I'm Peter King. Welcome to the MMQB podcast with Peter King, where I take you inside the minds of the biggest influencers in the NFL. This week, a revealing conversation with Jets quarterback Josh McCown, who he's only been on 10 teams in his professional football life. A fantastic perspective on life and football. And also, football lifer Gil Brandt, the czar of the Dallas Cowboys in the old days, and now a fountain of information on NFL.com. And now, about the story that just simply will not go away. It's the NFL's battle with everybody, with Donald Trump, with Mike Pence, with the players, the owners, what to do about the national anthem. You know, I've covered the NFL for a long time, and I've never had a story that had less to do with the NFL, uh, but that dominates so much about w- when we talk about the NFL today as the issue of whether players should stand at attention for the national anthem before games. So... Here's the latest. Obviously, you saw on Tuesday that Roger Goodell said that essentially we have to get to the bottom of this and we have to stop this from being a distraction to our football season. So uh, Goodell is going to convene an NFL meeting next Tuesday and Wednesday in New York, a regular fall meeting, NFL meeting. And at this meeting, he basically is told all the owners in the league, come ready to discuss this problem because we need to put it behind us. So on Tuesday, Roger Goodell was in Miami. He did a police ride along with three Miami Dolphins players. Uh, It's at least the fourth time that he has met with players in the last month. The first time was in Philadelphia on September 12th uh, with various players. Um... So Roger Goodell has attempted to hear the concerns of players, what's important to them. Uh, and, and I think many players are concerned that, um, that, that this basically has been strictly a Colin Kaepernick issue, uh, that everybody has the same agenda as Colin Kaepernick. Well, I think players like Malcolm Jenkins, Doug Baldwin, others um, are going to do their best in the next few days and in advance of this meeting with the owners to try to convince the owners and the NFL office that what they're more interested in in is building bridges uh, to try to get to some solutions uh, or at least make progress towards some of the very divisive issues that are plaguing our inner cities, particularly today. Those involve uh, better relations with police and uh, clearly a lot of what uh, I think most people would identify as civil rights issues. So I think what you're going to see come out of these NFL meetings next week is 
whether it be 100% commitment by players to stand for the anthem, is I think you're going to see owners try to adopt a rule that will insist on players standing for the anthem. And in exchange, they will try to do some things that players want them to do in the community as far as, you know, social issues, civil rights issues. And, you know, we'll see if they can build a bridge that way. I think it's going to be very difficult because I think there are going to be some players, take Marshawn Lynch of the Oakland Raiders, who currently is sitting during the National Anthem. He's an iconoclast. I think he's very much on the side of the players, but I'm not sure he's going to react well to being told, okay, uh, the league is going to do X, Y, and Z for us, so we all are going to stand for the anthem now. That's going to be the issue, whether the NFL can get the solidarity among the however many 1,600-plus players who suit up for games every week. Can there be enough solidarity so that next week out of the league meetings in New York, they can finally bury this as an issue? That's going to be the really big question. Talking to Doug Baldwin on Tuesday of the Seattle Seahawks, who's really one of the most socially conscious players I've ever covered in the time I've been in the league. He's the son of a Pensacola police officer. Um, You know, he told me, listen, I choose to be optimistic about this. I choose to try to make progress toward a solution here. And so I think that there are going to be some players who are going to be very open to try to get something done and to try to make some progress on some of these very contentious social issues. And I think there are going to be some players who are not going to want to, who are going to be, who are going to feel like, hey, look, the NFL is trying to buy us off. And we're not going to do that. So I think there's going to be some drama at these NFL meetings and also drama in seeing how the players react to them. And I just really hope that, uh, you know, for the sake of the game, that there can be uh, an agreement made that both sides feel like they're making some progress toward some of the really divisive issues that are plaguing our society. And now my conversation with the well-traveled New York Jets quarterback, Josh McCown. Back on the MMQB podcast with Peter King. Uh, fortunate today to be joined at the New York Jets facility in Florham Park, New Jersey, uh, by Josh McCown, the starting quarterback of the New York Jets. Um, I, I just have to think sometimes, Josh, that, and I, I want to preface this by saying that, um, you know, I'm a little surprised to see you here. Just like I'm kind of surprised everywhere you sort of end up, you know, because I always think he's going to get on a team and he's going to stay there for five, six, seven years, but it never happens. And you know what I want to do before we start, if you don't mind, I'm just going to read a very short introduction to this interview. It's from a story that Dan Pompey wrote about you for Bleacher Report in August. I really, really like this story. And here's how it begins. Josh McCown's teams have lost 65% of the games they've played with him on the roster. He has stood on the sidelines for the playoffs once in 14 seasons as an NFL quarterback. He's been cut four times and traded twice. He's played for a different offensive coordinator every year in the NFL and 23 different coordinators stretching back to his high school days. He's lived in a dozen places across the United States since his career began. For 10 consecutive years, McCown, his wife Natalie, and their four children found themselves in a different city on Christmas morning. His daughter Bridget 
has had to go to two schools for kindergarten, two schools for first grade, two schools for second grade, two schools for third, and two for fourth. So with that having been said, <laughs> I welcome in uh, the most well-traveled human being, not just football player, I think, that that I've met in my life. But uh, Josh, it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you. I'm glad to be on. That's yeah. a heck of a, a heck of an intro. Yeah, well... <laughs> Do you ever sometimes think, how did this all happen? What happened to me? How did my life turn out this way? Uh, uh, often we, we talk about that, but I think more uh, than anything, probably out of a sense of gratitude. You know, um, when you read that list off, when you sit down and, and plan your career out or envision what you hope your career to be, uh, it's probably certainly doesn't entail those things. You don't think you're going to be a wizard with a, a, a packing tape gun, you know, by year seven or eight. But uh, but that's you know that was the, the the plan set out you know a long time ago, I guess you know, and and, and so we've we've just tried to work within that, um, remain faithful through it together. And and my family's been unbelievable in how how much they've supported me, and and uh, that's been our journey, and we've embraced it, and. Uh, and now we're we're in New York, and we're we're thankful to be here. So, uh, Josh, let's. I, I want to go way back and ask you. You're a Texas kid, and I want to ask you: How did you get your love for football to begin with? And how do you think you started on this roller coaster? Yeah. So the love for football would probably start with my dad, uh, and then growing up in Texas, and and. Uh, being Cowboys fans, um, we would come home uh, from church every Sunday. Cowboy game would be on. We'd watch the first half. At halftime, we would throw on our helmets, throw on our pads, and me and my three brothers would go out and we'd play in the yard, and my dad would make up the fourth guy, and it would kind of be a two-on-two, and he would be on his knees, and, and we'd be playing ball. And that's where it started. And uh, and from then, it kind of grew and and. My older brother was the first one to kind of take a swing at it, and he was a heck of a high school football player. And and uh, and his sophomore year, we were playing from Jacksonville High School. We were playing over at Corsicana High School. He made an epic comeback in the fourth quarter, down like twenty-eight to seven with you know four minutes left or some some crazy like that. And in that moment, man, I was I was hooked. I said, I I, I want to be like him. I want to do this. I want to I want to be good at football. And, I'll never forget that, and uh, and it was a special time. But that's really back home in Texas where it started. So when you ended up being, you know, thinking that you might have a chance, you got to correct me if I'm wrong. I think you started at, at SMU. That's correct. You started at SMU, yeah. and then you ended up transferring to Sam Houston. That's right. What happened exactly? So I was there, uh, and I played as a true freshman. And, uh, and you know, we kind of went back and forth on whether I had a redshirt or not. They play me. Um, I, you know, I end up kind of starting seven or eight games every year, six, seven games, and they would bench me. You know, for a couple of games or whatever, try to try to create a spark with the offense, those uh, type of things. And we were changing coordinators every time I was there. And so, by my third year, or at the end of my third year, I just was kind of taking stock in it. Uh, one of my good friends was down at Sam Houston State playing there, and I was considering transferring. And, and uh, he said, "Man, we've got 21 guys coming back. We need a quarterback." And uh, so it made me consider it even more. And just looking at where I was, you know, with, with the program at SMU, and I said, you know what, I just wasn't happy. I just wasn't having fun. Maybe football wasn't fun anymore. And, and I thought, you know, I don't know what's beyond this, 
But my last, if this is my last year of playing football, and I'd watch my brother go through it at A and M, you know, graduating NFL, not really working out for him, and uh, so I said, if this is my last year, I want to go have fun. And so we just, as a family, made a choice uh, to look at some different schools, and ended up at Sam Houston State, and had a blast my senior year. You end up getting drafted by the Arizona Cardinals, and uh, you 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 played some, especially in two thousand four. I think it was you started thirteen games. Take me into that era in your life. Mm-hmm. In that year that you started, did you think, okay, this is going to be the start of of a long time in the NFL? I'm going to be, I'm going to be playing Peyton Manning every you know every year and everything. What what were you thinking when you got that shot? Absolutely, all that's you know kind of always been the mindset at all these stops. Really, that's just how I how I go into it, and certainly. You know, coach. We hire Coach Green. We, you know, we make the decision not to draft a quarterback. We draft Larry Fitzgerald, which was a heck of a heck of a uh, decision by them. Uh, he makes me the starter, and so I'm thinking exactly that. I'm going to run with this thing and and never look back. And you know, I think we found ourselves at four and five that that first year or something around those lines. But uh, they they benched me. They sat me down because we weren't really you know producing a lot of high numbers offensively. But we we had you know won three out of four and all that. But uh, they made that move and then. End up playing the the rest of the year and and did did some good things and did some good things the next year but never kind of had that sustained success that that I was chasing and and moved on but n- no doubt about it when when Coach Green I I saved that message for a long time when he when he what did my, he say he he said hey Josh it's Denny Green um, just when you come by uh, but uh, when you can but uh, you know in, in case you don't get here you know I just want you to know I'm excited about you and I, I expect you to be our guy. You know, and and uh, I'll never forget that. And and then you know we go ahead and draft uh, draft Larry, and and um, and the rest is history as far as that goes. But uh, but um, but it was a cool moment. Did for you me. throw Larry Fitzgerald his first touchdown pass? I did. You did. I did. I threw what, him his face. What was the story? Uh, the well, the the story. I can't remember the first uh, touchdown. I think it was a a go or a fade route. With the first, you and I have talked about the first his first reception was a flea flicker. Yeah. Opening play of 2004 at St. Louis. It's crazy. We 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 have this flea flicker dialed up all week. We got to get good. Coach Green says get, get a good field position. We're going to run it. Well, we get a holding call on the kickoff return, so we're backed up like on our ten. I'm thinking, okay, we're not running it. He's like, let's do it. <laughs> we do it. They bring a weak safety pressure. Emmett Smith grabs the ball on the flea flicker, turns, pitches it, and goes and picks up a blocker which is a credit to Emmett's greatness in itself. That's another story. I catch it, try to find the laces best I can and pump it down there to Larry. There's two guys on him. Aeneas Williams is one of them. And, and I got a huge picture at my house. Larry's going up over two guys, boom, making this great catch. <laughs> and, uh, and as I said the before. The first catch of his life. First catch of his life. You know, that's so, it's, deal. what's so interesting is that your first snap there, your running backs Emmett Smith and your wide receivers Larry Fitzgerald. They might be they might be two of the best who ever did it. No question. I, I've had the great fortune of being around some good players, and I, in, in your right, I look back on that, and and I'm sitting there going, man, my first you know opening day start. Uh, I'm I'm you know now in in hindsight looking at I was playing with two Hall of Famers and and Anquan Bolden too maybe in wow. that mix. So uh, a heck of a group. Wow, that's amazing. So you move on to Detroit. You move on to Oakland. Okay. So, 2007, you start nine games for the Oakland Raiders. Tell me your Al Davis story. <laughs> Al, it was that was a pleasure to to you know just to experience 
Oakland and to be around somebody who, you know, as I look back and, and, and learn more about the history of the game, somebody who, who impacted our league so profoundly. And, I, and yeah. a lot of times I don't think gets enough credit for, for what he did to bring this league together. And, and uh, you know, uh, my first one was yeah, I was – we were uh, hanging out um, after a game, loading a car up. This black, you know, Lincoln Town car comes up, the, the window goes down, boom. He says, hey, McCown, come here. So I go over there, and he says, he says, the who's second, in the car? It's it's Al, you know. It's it's a driver, and it's Al, you know. And so, uh, I mean, it, it it was like a scene out of Goodfellas, you know. And <laughs> and so I'm I'm you know my heart's beating fast, and he says, the second quarter, you you threw the ball in the flat. You had Matson on the corner. Why didn't you throw the corner? And I'm you know I'm stumbling through the answer, you know, and I'm not trying to you know I was just following my reads and doing what I was supposed to do. I didn't want to sell it to coaches, you know. It's and I you know I kind of fumbled through the answer and. And I get done talking, and he goes, and he just kind of nods his head, and he goes, "It's the Raiders. Throw the ball downfield, and then the, the, window, goes, <laughs> the window goes up, and he pulls off, you know. So, so, uh, so, you know, it was it was a great experience being around Al for sure. What what do you think? What do you think you learned from Al? What was your what's your big football takeaway from Al? So he was he was so sharp even even at that age. And my football takeaway was this: because this that, is two thousand seven, this is four years before he died, and he is still involved every day in all of it. I'll give you another one. We walk in, we're hanging out, you know, kind of waiting for a team meeting to start. Here he comes in. He's got his walker, you know, he's coming in, and he sees one of our DNs, rookie DN, and uh, the name escapes me right now. But he he comes up to him. He says, "Hey, last year." You played with your right hand down. Now you're playing with your left hand down. Why? Put your right hand down. You had your best games. You know, he was all over it. Like the yeah. details of, he goes, you're not playing good right now. Put your left hand back down. And, and he rattled off like the, the three games in college that he did that. And, uh-huh. and his sack numbers and everything. And so I'm sitting there, you know, immediately took away from that was like, this guy's on the details. Like he's at the top of the organization. And say what you will about, you know, personnel decisions and, and kind of how things went. Yeah. Nobody cared more about that team and about their success than him, bar none. I mean, and so uh, I think that was my biggest takeaway is he was – like commitment to excellence wasn't just a, uh, something he had copywritten. He, he was legit his life, and, uh, and he, he believed that. You know, in 2004, I covered the Raiders draft. It was the year they took Robert Gallery. They bypassed all the quarterbacks, you know, Phillip Rivers, right. Roethlisberger, right. Eli – I don't, they wouldn't have been able to take Eli. But they bypassed the quarterbacks, and they took Robert Gallery. The day before the draft, just an, a very odd day, the day before the draft that year was the day that Pat Tillman was killed That's right. in Afghanistan. I that. But the day before the draft, I had an audience with Al in his office. And what was so interesting about his office is that <clears> – so. He had four TVs set up in like a diamond uh, at one end of the room. And at the time, he had a, it was either, I guess it was a videotape because it wouldn't have been DVR at the time. He had a videotape of the UConn women's basketball team yes, playing. Yes, loved women's basketball. He lo- and so, I mean, I'm thinking to myself, God, we, I've been in here for a half hour. All we're doing <laughs> is talking. Because I'm from Connecticut, and I told him, yeah, my uh, sister and my brother-in-law have season tickets to UConn women's basketball. They go to every game. They know they know Gino. They they know Gino. They, you know, and sure, and so sure. and so they uh, he 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 loved it. And I think the reason that he loved it is Al Davis loved anything 
where somebody was dominant. He felt that he could learn something from a situation where somebody, Gino Ariema, had figured out how to dominate this level of sports, whatever the sport was. No doubt. And and he and he learned. He would he'd ask questions. He would try to find things out about Gino and Pat Summit and why they were the singular figures, you know, the two most important figures in college ba- women's college basketball. I was so fascinated by that. I had no clue, but I was so fascinated that he learned from women's basketball. And I, I tell people that, and they say, "What? You, you're crazy." That, but it's true. Absolutely, he did. Yeah. He called me in at the end of the year, and basically, we went down like the, our defensive roster. Tell me about this player. Tell me about that player. Why is he good? Why isn't he good? And I'm sitting here thinking, you know, like I'm I'm a quarterback on a team. You know what I mean? And 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 I'm not certainly not the franchise. We had just drafted Jamarcus Russell. You know, and so, uh, but it was his. You know. No stone left unturned. I mean, he was always mining yeah. for things that he could find out about people. And, and I remember, I remember before I went up there, I asked some of the some of the guys, I go, "Hey, Mr. Davis, he wants to, you know some of the trainers and H. Rod Martin out there." And, and uh, I said, "Hey, you know, Mr. Davis wants to meet me. You know, what, what, what should I expect?" And he go, they said, "This, whatever you said last time, he will remember and he will hold you accountable to it." <laughs> so if you if he, if you if he asks you about a guy and you said you had an opinion about that player before, he will hold you accountable to it, and that was a hundred percent true. And uh, and I, you know, it was just fascinating his mind for that. And and to your point his desire to, to continue to improve no matter what the situation uh, was or, or even his age. So uh, I, I want to I fast forward now to a period in your life, and you're going to have to remind me the exact year. It was either 2010 or 2011. You played for Chris Palmer with the Hartford Colonials of the United Football League, That's right? That's correct. 2010? Yep, 2010. Okay. okay. Explain to me how you got into the Hartford Colonials and what minor league football was like. <laughs> so they had started that league the year before. I finished on in Carolina on IR. Okay, so I go through the offseason, phone doesn't ring, you know, because I didn't have any snaps the previous year. I had backed up Jake DeLone for two straight years and played five total snaps. So not a lot of tape on me. Uh, so I don't get a call. I'm waiting the summer out. Um, J.P. Losman had played the year before, had some success, got signed by Seattle. So I'm sitting there thinking, okay, maybe I can do that. So August approaches, nobody calls. My agent says, hey, man, let's give this UFL thing a chance. You know, talk to Chris. Uh, those things go well. We, we kind of get everything set up. I'm heading there, and, uh, and a team calls me, an NFL team calls me like the night before I'm going. And Chris said, listen – you know, before we start camp, if you if you get an opportunity, because they started, you know, a couple of weeks after the NFL, he said, if you get an opportunity, I'll let you out. And uh, and sure enough, I had a team call me, and uh, and I was just wrestling with it, wrestling with it. I just didn't have peace. I felt like I'd given, you know, I'd already been up to, to Hartford, done some media stuff, and I was just like, man, I just didn't have peace about breaking my commitment. And so I went on went on that Monday. We started camp, and and uh, and that team continued to pursue me, but I stuck with it, and uh, and. 
it was a great experience. It was, but you know, trust me when I, you played in East Hartford, right at that stadium it, it, that UConn plays, it, at, right? no doubt. That's exactly where we played, and it was awesome. And we the first game, the fans came out pretty well, and you know, for me, that that was no different than this past weekend in Cleveland and the previous weekend. I mean, it was you're playing football and yeah. you love it, and so I don't care who shows up. You know, they paint the field. Let's play. You know, and and <laughs> so um, so. And, and in that environment, it was a bunch of guys who loved it, who were, you know, some of us who were hanging on, trying to, you know, you know, revive a career. Some guys who were just trying to get it kick-started. It was all kinds of guys, and it was refreshing to be in that group. Chris was a perfect guy to be a part of that. I really wish our league would find something like that because I think right. there's value in that. Um, but, uh, but I really, really enjoyed my time there. Yeah. Where'd you live in Hartford? You remember? We lived out um, wherever we had camp. We was a, there was a Crown Plaza so okay. we, we just stayed in a hotel. So it was, it was, it was really like eight weeks of training camp. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. You're just there in a hotel. Where, where were the road trips like? Where did you go? Did you go to Omaha? We went to Omaha. Let me tell you something, Peter, about <laughs> Omaha. Okay? Yeah. Omaha Nighthawks, they had just moved a team there. I don't think they were even there the previous year in the U, UFL. I don't know who was running the PR at Omaha Nighthawks, but we need to hire that guy right now. This guy, like, we pull up there. They're tailgating. They've got shirts. They're selling stuff. I'm, we're like, this team started here six weeks ago, and it looks like they've been playing football here for fifty years. And, you know, and so they like football in Nebraska. They love it. No, there's no doubt about it. They had Jeff Garcia. They had Armand Green playing. Wow. We're playing there at Rosenblatt Stadium where they play the College World oh, Series. Yeah. Um, and uh, I tell you what, it was a heck of an environment. We had twenty five thousand people there. That thing was packed. Wow. We had the field running, you know, sideways in the stadium, the baseball stadium, and we had a blast. Yeah. I mean, it was a lot of fun, and, and uh, you know, it was fun to go out there and, and to shake hands with Jeff Garcia before and after the game. Guys, you know, I'd played against him in the NFL, and yeah. here we are in the UFL. So, man, that was, that was a heck of a thing. We go to Vegas. We play Vegas-Sacramento back-to-back, and we make – I don't know if this is the wisest choice. We, we, we stay in Vegas the whole week. Okay. Yeah. So we play Vegas first. We stay practice the whole week. Play Sacramento second. I think, I, you know, I would come in. I'm not a big gambler, but we had a, a, a heck of a contingency around the craps tables because we stayed at a casino. <laughs> oh. And I, I was afraid. I was like, man, our guys are going to be playing for free by the by the end of this week. And and uh, <laughs> but but there there were some fun memories from that 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 uh, experience for sure. Yeah. Uh, with Josh McCown of the New York Jets. So I do want to get to a couple of current things, but. One other thing about history, and my question would overall be, all right, so I've met your family, and they many times, many times have stayed back while you played. Um, I think when you were in Cleveland, they stayed, for the most part, in Charlotte, would come up for games. Uh, And I just wonder, overall, when you look back on it, how difficult has that part of it been? And have there been times where you'd hang up the phone at night or you'd hang up FaceTime and say, what am I doing? Oh, no doubt. And it starts with my wife. I mean, she is – for me to be able to do this, it begins and ends with her and, and just her support. It really – you know, the UFL year, because we did half a year that way, that was the first time we had done it. And Well, I'll back up. We, we did it when I got traded from the Dolphins to, to Carolina – we did it for that season because the kids, you know, different when you get when when your employment begins and ends at training camp, it's hard if you got family to go, OK, let's move right. before the school year. So we stayed and I did it. And then then when they moved to Carolina, well, with the UFL, we did it for eight weeks. And so 
after that, it was just a series of one-year deals, you know, kind of until the deal in Tampa. And so, uh, but by that point, my oldest was in high school. So it was like, well, I'm not going to pull her out. So we just kind of learned to manage it. It's, it's not been ideal um, by any stretch. Thank God for FaceTime. Uh, but I also understand I'm not the only guy who works and works away from his family. We have people serving and protecting this country that spend, you know, sometimes six months, eight months, years at a time without being able to see their family. So um, you sort of identify with the military families. Don't yeah, you? No, no doubt. And to a degree, um, obviously, the sacrifice that they're making is greater than mine. But the, the time away um, is is still your it's hard because you do. There was so many nights I've hung up FaceTimes and I hung up, you know, times with my kids that I, you know, I just sit there and cry and go, man, I, I don't, you know, I don't want to, I can't do it. I can't do it anymore. You know? And, and then and why then would no, you keep going? And then another home game would come and they would come see me and, and the joy that they had. And then we would, at the end of the season, we would sit down and we'd go, okay. And, and my kids and especially my two boys, they're dad, you gotta keep playing. We love it. You know, they're, they're so supportive. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and so it's like, I'm sitting there going, do you really want me to play? Or are you just glad that's not home, <laughs> you know, to cut off the Xbox? So, but, uh, but I, I think the fun thing about our job is, especially as a player, is, you know, February, March, April, you get a lot of time, you know, right. and, and cumulatively it probably averages out to about what a normal guy who does nine to five and only gets two hours a day in the evening or so or three hours a day probably adds up the same. You know, so I get to take them to school in the off season. I get to spend a ton of time with them, and uh, and we spend a lot of time in the summer together. So we definitely soaked that up. And and I wouldn't for a second continue playing if I thought or believed, first of all, that it would affect my marriage or my parenting. That it, that it would come in into uh, you know a place where it would damage. You know that. what is really a good thing, in my opinion. When a child can gets used to living in different places, because I just don't think that we are meant as human beings to be born somewhere, to grow up there, to live there, and to die there. I just like when my kids got out of college, I said, "Listen, one went to Colgate and one went to Tufts, so they're in New York and Boston. We're a northeastern family." And I always said, "We want you to experience the country. So if you go somewhere else." We'll help you for say six or eight months. We'll, you know, we'll help you with an apartment and everything like that. One went to L.A. and one went to Seattle. Now they're both still on the West Coast. Sometimes that's a bummer, but I'm happy they're getting to see other parts of the country rather than just staying in one spot. I agree with it 100. percent I think there's there's something about that that when you when you move places, it, it does it cultivates your soul a little bit. That you get to you get to meet new people, meet, see new cultures, see how people live on that this side of the country in that place, and and uh, and it it helps you grow and, and develop as a person. We, we are thankful for that. Our kids have been in, in a few different spots, and and uh, you can kind of put them in any environment. It's not hard for them to make friends because they've experienced that. So we're thankful for that part for sure. This is the MMQB podcast. In need of great talent for your business but short on time? You don't have to get lost in a huge stack of resumes to find your perfect hire. You just need the right tools. Smarter tools. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. So you can rest easy knowing your job is being seen by the right candidates. Then, ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work actively notifying quality candidates about your job within minutes of posting. 
so you receive the best possible matches. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you. It finds them. You can even get a head start on the interview process by adding screening questions to your job post. That helps you identify the most qualified candidates. So you don't have to waste time sorting through a stack of resumes to find the perfect fit. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And the easy-to-use ZipRecruiter dashboard lets you manage your hiring process from start to finish, all in one place. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Find out why ZipRecruiter has been used by growing businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash MMQB. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash MMQB. Just one more time. Try it. It's free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash MMQB. So, Josh, I got two other topics that I want to touch on quickly, and then I'm going to get to the Jets. The first is, so I really sort of got to know you a little bit when you were in Cleveland. And one of the reasons why I was drawn to you is because of your attitude about helping Johnny Manziel. And so Johnny Manziel, this total lightning rod guy, and so it didn't take people long to really get into sort of polarized camps on Johnny Manziel, mostly negative, but a few love the rebellious type and, you know, hey, the individual and going to Vegas and all this stuff. And I would talk to you about him a couple of times and you, you love Johnny Manziel. I do. You love the guy. You loved him as a player. You were determined to help him both in life and in football. And even at the risk of your job, okay? And that's one of the reasons why I think that people who've been on teams with you appreciate you because you're, if, if a coach tells you, you're going to be individually hurt, but if a coach tells you I'm playing the other guy, you're going to help the other guy try to win the game this weekend. So I want to ask you, where did you get the selflessness that – has sort of become a trait. I was talking to Todd Bowles about you, and he said, you know, one of the most unselfish guys I've ever been around. Where did you get that trait? Well, I, you know, I don't know exactly where that that probably comes from. I, you know, I, I'm thankful that I grew up in the house that I did and, and, you know, watched my parents, you know, model that for me as far as just sacrifice for one another, for their kids. Uh, and I think that's the, that's the starting point for it. You know, I think, when you when you say you love somebody or you say you're for somebody, uh, it's just lip service unless I think you're willing to sacrifice and, and to go, you know what, um, even if it's to my detriment, if it's better for that person, that's what I care about. And uh, and I would say, obviously, that my faith probably informs a lot of that. Um, and and at my core, that's that's where most of that comes from. But uh, but I just think, you know, being on a team and and. and 
I think that's something that it's really special. It's 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 so it's so cool to be a part of a team and and to work towards one goal and, and to be able to go. You know what? What's best for this group of people, and and where do I fit into what's best for this group? And then do I have the courage enough to follow that even when it doesn't promote me? And uh, and those are hard things. And and uh, you know, there's moments that that I've been able to see that and been able to operate in that. And there's other moments where you know you get clouded and you go, man, I, I just want to, I just want it to work out for me. But in that moment, um, you know, especially with the Browns, understanding why they brought me there and wanting to see the best for Johnny, you know, both, I think too, because of, I, you get around guys and you get to know them as people. And then you see the perception of them publicly. And, uh, and it, there's almost an injustice there sometimes. And it's not, you know, and it's not fair and, and you get frustrated with it. And, and so for me, uh, I just want, to hope that those guys can can you know that eventually people see what everybody else gets to see in those guys and I think what you, did you see in Johnny? I, I just when you took away all the other stuff, all the money Menzel and all the all the hype and stuff like that, and you sat in a room with him, I saw a, a guy who was sharp when we talked about football, uh, when we would when we would take notes, when we would when we install a play and and talk about protections and stuff like that, he could digest it and he could regurgitate it and he knew. You know, and then he had a skill set too, and uh, and just around him in the locker room when when there was no pretense, the guys liked him. They gravitated towards him. Great smile and just a good personality and a funny guy. You know, and and I'm and I'm sitting there watching this and I'm going, man, nobody knows about this. You know, they yeah. they have this other perception and for whatever he was fighting, and I think sometimes just the fame that, that accelerated everything so quickly for him sometimes makes you feel like maybe out in public you have to be somebody else or be that guy. But uh, but I enjoyed the meetings with him. I enjoyed hanging with him. He was just a funny guy, fun to be around, cool dude. And and uh, and, I, and so when you get that sense and, and it's your teammate and you know what the organization is trying to do with that position, you, all those things considered, it's easy to sacrifice for that guy, in my opinion. And then you, you, you want to see the best for him. What's the fate of Johnny Manziel, do you think? Are you still in touch with him at all? Yeah, every now and then, you know, from yeah. time to time. You know, we try to check in and, and make sure he's doing all right. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, I hope. I mean, he's still young. I really – he can spin a football now. He can really throw a football. And uh, – and – I think he can play if he if 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 he got committed to it. Yeah. If he said this is all I'm going to do, and focused on that, uh, I, and, he, and he wanted to, I think he could do it. But that's you know that's where kind of in anything that's where you can't want it more than them. And and right, you know, if, if you get to a certain point uh, that you find somebody that goes, man, I, you know, I'm just kind of happy with how this has gone. That's that's where you're at, you know. And and so I, you know, I, I I encourage him. I hope he keeps keeps chasing it and, and kind of. You know, reloads and makes another run at it, but we'll see. You know, but uh, I wish him the best all the time. So you obviously love football. You have been devoted to football for a big part of your life, and I wonder now, as you look at football, um, it's in many cases in a justified way. It's being attacked on all sides, um, and I wonder when you look at the game. Do you think football survives long term? And what if you were, if Roger Goodell said to you, what do you think we need to do to make sure that football remains America's pastime? Wow. Um, that's a great question. I, I think and I hope it survives. I think we got to keep, 
keep providing proper information to the players that are playing currently, to people that are coming through, and to keep making the game safer. So that so that from from that regard, people will um, people will understand you know what a great sport it is, but also that um, that it can be done and played at a high level, but in a safe way. And I and I do I do think. Our league has gotten so much better, even in my 15 years. From just from a health standpoint, from when I came into the league to now, it's night and day. I'm talking about from sleep, eating, training room. It's not even close. It's it's changed so much, and and I think for the better because there's so much more science and we're so much more aware of of what we can do to give me you know, an example. Give me an example well, of how it's changed. Get, t- well, tell me about days. sleep. Tell me about sleep. Well, sleep. I mean, like nobody used to talk about sleep. You know, guys would come in. You know, after Friday night partying and come in. You know, or, or Thursday partying Friday. You know, they're showing up at work. You know, half still hung over and and you know going out playing. I'm not saying that doesn't happen now, but it happens more or less because people are in tune to you know and teams are talking about it. You know, used to they didn't talk about sleep. You know, I was in. You know, I've been to different places where we we brought in sleep specialists to talk to us to tell us about you know what sleep does for your body. Just the two days in general that we used to do that we don't do anymore. So that in itself, the we we've we've for training camp taken half of the hits away that that are so repetitive that they say you know um, leads to leads to brain trauma. So I think all those things we're we're working towards it and and. I don't believe the league or the union or anybody else is just sitting on their hands. I think we all want for things to get better. We all want this game to keep going. It's, uh, you know, you, you you watch how it brings people together. You watch how it brings families together, how much people love it. So you want it to be around, and, and I believe that we're working with that intention of what's best for the player to be healthy because ultimately that's what's going to keep our game around is when people think it's a safe game. As a father of sons, I'm wondering, because I have this thing. I didn't have sons. So I had two daughters, but I always have wondered, especially recently, Drew Brees last year gave me this, not really fire and brimstone, but he gave me this thing that says, look, I didn't play tackle football until I was in high school. And I want my boys to play football, but they're playing flag football all through their youth and middle school and everything. So what do you think of flag football versus tackle football at a very young age now? I, I would agree 100%. Um, my oldest boy, we, we started playing school football, tackle football in sixth grade, okay? And I don't know if, if, if I would have done that early, you know, looking back. And now my boys are seventh and eighth graders, and they're playing. And, uh, and I, you know, I, I, when I, my first tackle football experience was seventh grade. I, I really kind of think seventh, eighth grade is as early as you need to do it. So, you know, all this playing and putting pads on kids and, and stuff like that. I, I At think, like six and seven years old, you know what it, I think it, of it? I think of it as almost like a costume thing. You exactly. Know, and, yeah. it, and I just, it, it's You hard. know what Dayon Buchanan told me when I asked him this question? He said, I thought it was fantastic. He said that, hey, you know, I, was, I played flag football in fifth and sixth grade. And honestly, if I had been hit hard in fifth grade, I probably would have gone home and said, Mom, I don't want to play that. That that's hurts. What, that's what I was, exactly what I was about to say. <laughs> like, it, it does. You're, you're at a point, especially maturity-wise, where you don't want to get hit. And, and so in some of the unhealthy areas, 
and where coaches are lining these kids up and letting them hit for, for I believe, adult entertainment is, is ridiculous. And th- those kids don't want to do that. There's no way. And so what do you do when you're a kid that doesn't want to do that and now you're lined up in that, put in that environment where you have an authoritative figure asking you to run into somebody? It's going to scare you away from the game. So I don't think it's good for our game that, that kids play at a young age. I, you know, and I really wish we would, we would mandate it. I mean, I wish that we would take it out of, out of anybody's hands and just say, you know what, it's seventh grade or it's eighth grade, whatever, you know, 13, 14, determine one of those ages. Now we say, you know what, that's when we're going to start hitting. And we're going to learn it, and there's going to be kids that are mature enough to handle it. And I think it's going to, it would make our game better. But, you know, I'm just I, – I cringe every time I see the, the, the little guys with the, with the helmets that are eight sizes too big right. running. I just, I'm just like, why? It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. Um, Josh, I want to ask you about the New York Jets. At the beginning of the year, I told Todd Bowles this after you guys beat Cleveland – at the beginning of the year, I was just like everybody else. I thought you guys are going to be the worst team in football. And, you know, what has really impressed me, A, I mean, you're completing 71%, you know, and you've got all these new guys. I mean, Jermaine Kerr shows up. He's got whatever, 22 catches now. You with Jermaine Kerr in Oakland. I was at the game in Oakland. I mean, I don't know how you form chemistry in 10 minutes, but you guys did that. That really kind of interests me. But just just tell me in, in your opinion, let's talk, just talk offensively. Mm-hmm. Why have you guys been able to be competent? You know, you're not, the, you're not the 2007 Patriots on offense, but why have you guys been able to be good enough on offense with so many new characters right. playing with each other for the first time well I've, I've you know been playing with a lot of new guys my whole career <laughs> just by <laughs> nature of the stops but you know I, it's really I think coaching you know uh you know Todd and then you know making the decision to hire Johnny Morton has been fantastic Jeremy Bates has been awesome for me and uh and quarterback coach quarterback yep. coach yeah they, they've been fantastic and uh Johnny Moe puts together a great game plan every week um the acquisition of Jermaine was huge because he was coming from a place. You know, we lost Quincy Anuma. We needed a veteran presence in that room. And he was coming from a place in Seattle where they've had a lot of success. So he understands what it takes to be a pro. And he's been a great voice in that room. We we just connected because he – I mean, he's a football junkie. He loves it. And uh, and so I think those things combined, we spent a lot of time detailing out how we're going to do things. And for me, I go into every game understanding – you know, holistically how our team's built, you know, where our strength where, where our strengths and weaknesses are and, and then just wanting to do my part, do my job, complete the balls, uh, and give our guys chances to make plays. And um and so we're we're you know, we've done a good job of coming together and doing that. Uh and again I'd say it was you know, it was mainly for the coaches, but just not trying to get not not trying to do too much, you know, on myself or anybody else. Just just do your part, do your job and really internalizing that. And uh and um that's been the case and we feel like we can be a lot better, uh, quite frankly. But um but for us, you know, it's it's fun to as you learning how to be better and, and learning how to grow together as an offense kind of in our you know, I, I say you know, we, we changed so much at the at the 53-man roster that we kind of had a second preseason these first four games. You know, I didn't play a whole lot in the preseason, so we're all kind of coming together. And so when you can leave the first four going two and two, learning about yourself, that's a good thing for us. And, and uh, we're excited about, you know, where we can take it. 
the Jets fan listening to this will say, all right, tell me the truth about Hackenberg. Does Hackenberg have a chance? Yeah, you know, I do. I believe Hack can Hack can play. He just got to grow. You know, he just he just you know more reps, more time, more experience. It's in this business, and and you know Joe Flacco and Matt Ryan kind of ruined it for everybody about seven or eight years ago. When they <laughs> they came in and lit it up, and then everybody said, "Well, you should do like that," you know. <laughs> but uh, but you know what? What Tom sit for a year or two, Aaron sat for three. Those are the best guys in our game. You know, uh, Drew sat for one. You, sometimes it takes some time, you know, and, and I just I think there's value in that to be able to sit and to watch, to learn, and the the second big thing, and I and I know just because I don't know what it's like to be in an offense two years in a row, that there's value in, in staying in a system and learning it, especially as a young player. Is I mean, that true, really? 100%. Every every year you've had a different every coordinator. Year. Every year. Every year. Yeah. yeah. So, wow. um, so. So I so to frame it, so I go into an off season with note cards, learning formations, learning you know, I'm walking into the line of scrimmage going, What do we call this? Oh yeah, this is what we call that. Now by attrition it's gotten easier because right. I've been over some of these I've I've been in the same offense twice. Yeah. So by attrition it's gotten easier. But if a young player is walking the line going, What do we call this? What do we call that? Do you think he's thinking about his footwork at all? You know what I mean? Do you think he's thinking, I need to work this kind of throw today or yeah. this kind of so there's so much value in keeping a system the same. I mean, if you're if you're drafting a quarterback or you're starting, you know, you're, you're you know building a franchise and you you don't change the change the coordinator in the offense and have that guy learning something new. It, I mean, you're diminishing his opportunity to be to, to get better. So I think for Hack, you know, he's gone through a system change here this offseason. All right, if he can stay in the same system, I think it gives him the best chance to be successful. And he's learning every day. He's grinding. He works very, very hard, you know, and uh, and that's going to give him a chance. He's got a tremendous skill set, uh, big old strong. I mean, he's how you draw him up, you know, and a uh, good athlete, and he's a sharp kid. And so I, I, I think he's got a chance to be successful. But it's just it's experience and learning for him. There aren't many people who can say that they have a they have a child. There aren't many NFL players <laughs> who can say they have a child in college, but you have a daughter who's a freshman in college now. I so I wonder, do you ever start to think, you know, maybe maybe I should go home and maybe I shouldn't maybe I should uh I should forego the dream and and go and do whatever. But so what's your what's your take on what your next few years are going to be like? We'll see. We'll do it. Just like we have, we'll sit down as a family and we'll discuss it and just see where it leaves us. We, you know, I hopped on a plane after our second preseason game and went and moved her in to her dorm room in college. Wow. Okay. And I land back here at this little Morristown airport and there's, I think the president had come in that day or somebody and there was secret service everywhere. And I'm typing her a note on my phone and I, you know, kind of this, this note, like you're, you know, going to college and just sharing some thoughts, sharing my heart with her. And I'm just, you know, just bawling, you know, and I'm, wow. and, uh, and I get off this plane, I got all these guys looking at me and I, you know, I've just got my head down trying, and, and it, it hits you at those moments. Like, man, this is a, you know, it's, it's a, it's a good milestone. You know, you turn the page and that part of her life is over, but she's, you know, going into she's the, the daughter who had the most famous McCown photo yes, in exactly. history. Oh yeah. Tell people about that photo. So, so we're, we're, uh, you know, it was in Cleveland, I guess, last year, and uh, she has Spirit Week, and she comes up to the last day of Spirit Week. It's Jersey Day, 
This and, okay, so they are in high school in high Charlotte, school. You know, Marvin Ridge High School in Charlotte. Yeah, and uh, and so she gone through Spirit Week. You know, done the, the various days. Friday hits. For those who don't know, what Spirit Week? What is it? I, I think it's just they pick a theme every day and they dress up like it, and it, it leads up to homecoming or you know a yeah. big Friday night game, right? And so Friday was Jersey Day, and uh, and so she texted me that morning, "Hey, it's Jersey Day. Do you mind if I, you know, wear a jersey?" And I'm you know, or mind if me and my friends grab a few jerseys and you know, we have a few around our house. So I said, yeah, go, you know, go for it. And I kind of quipped back at her, hope you have enough friends, you know, just kind of joking. <laughs> okay. So, so she goes, goes to school, sends me the pic later that day. She finishes the day and then they fly up to Cleveland to come for a home game for that weekend. We're sitting at dinner that night and I'm not too terribly active on social media, but she goes, Hey, you should tweet that picture. It's a cool picture. And I'm like, oh, this is cool. And so I kind of give her the phone. But, t- but explain explain the picture. So the picture. So yeah. oh yeah. So there, so the the picture kind of came about. So they're going. So she gives the various jerseys out. She brings them to school. Hands them out in the parking lot to her friends. Like hands them out. Yeah. They're running to school, and one of them has the foresight to say, "Let's grab a picture." So the picture, like they literally just stop, pop it, and then keep running the class. Yeah. And it just kind of turns out. You know what the great part of the picture is? They're they're all. It's their back. Yes, Their back is to the camera, and it's got McCown uh, Panthers, McCown yes. Bucks, McCown 49ers, McCown Browns, and every. I mean, he's got all these, and so and all these girls are kind of looking behind them yeah. at the camera, and I think there were six of them, if I'm not mistaken, however many. Yeah. But 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 it was just the cutest thing. So what happened when you put that on social media? It just went crazy. Yeah. Um, she, I gave the phone to her, and I said, "Okay, you 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 know you." tweeted out and so she kind of put in the comment you know about uh about what i said i hope you have enough friends or, or, or i may have or she may have we went back and forth maybe i maybe i was in one ended up typing it up but anyway we sent it out put my phone down and uh and then she was looking at it later and she goes hey dad this thing's like getting retweeted a bunch and yeah. i you know and i'm like what and she's like shows me and so it you know it kind of caught on and next thing you know you know her friends are like well you know they just showed our tweet on sports center and so <laughs> they were they were you know so for about 48 hours i was a really cool dad so <laughs> i felt good about that yeah um i'm going to ask you this about about the jets of all the places you've been I wonder if there is this sort of ridiculous fervor that, uh, you know, that uh, sort of overreaction to wins, you know, you're the greatest team in the world, to losses, you're the worst, and everything like that. But what have you thought in your very short time, uh, you know, in New York, New Jersey, about what it's like to be the quarterback of the New York Jets, of the team that Joe Namath was once the quarterback of. Yeah, uh, it's pretty cool. I got to I got to meet Joe um, earlier this year at, our, at like our kickoff luncheon or whatever, and and uh, it was it was just an honor to be around him, to be to be able to talk with him, and and just how sharp he is, and how much he still understands the game, and and uh, it, it's special, you know, it's, at this point in my career. And to be in, you know, it was kind of funny. We we laughed whenever we signed here. It's like, well, how could we get out of this career without playing in one of the New York for one of the New York team? You know what I mean? Like so, um, and 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 we're not saying that about LA. Trust me. So, so, uh, so that, that's not going to be next. But we were just, you know, it, it's been cool to be here to see. 
how much they like football, how big this market is, how competitive it is, uh, you know, from a media standpoint, and just the requirements that you have as a player and, and especially as a quarterback. And uh, Isn't it kind of interesting? You feel like when you're out here in Florham Park, New Jersey, you're like way out in the country. Like when Favre was here, he would go hunting, oh, yeah. you know, out here, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, you are, you're way out here. And then um, – and, and I think, you know, one of the things that brings you back to reality is like literally – you know, after practice, when the media scrum is at your at your locker, and you're like, "Oh yeah, we're in New York." Like, <laughs> like look at all these cameras, uh, because yeah, it's nice out here. It's quiet, and uh, and do you, you ever can, go into the city? I do, I do. Um, you know, every now and again, or you know, or, or maybe after a game, we'll go in there and get dinner or something like that. And and, uh, and so I've been able to get there a few times, and I, I enjoy just being around just people and the different cultures and just the yeah. buzz of this it's awesome and yeah. especially for a country boy from a town of 15,000 in east texas are you kidding me to to uh to be there it's it's special it's cool i i love the the vibe of the city and it's great energy and uh and it's fun to be there so hopefully you know it's all football right now but one of these days we'll get to spend more time in the city you're going to be a football coach aren't you whenever you finish <laughs> this maybe maybe one day it's 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 uh you know, we, now we've come to the point where it's like it's hard to it's hard to look up at seventy five or eighty years old, Lord willing, and be able to say I didn't coach. Right. At some point, I, I just I love this game. I love being around it. You have it in you. I love this game at this level. You know, and uh, at the high school level. At the high school level. Yeah. I, I love the game at the high school level. Yeah. I love, but I think beyond high school, I, th- I think I would prefer pro- professional. Oh, okay. Yeah, I All love right. I love the game at this level too because it's something about you know like yesterday game day walking into a stadium. And seeing these people come into this stadium, you know, in Cleveland, and one I was familiar with, but just how much they love their team. When we're at MetLife, how much they come together to, to support their team and just the buzz of game day and being a part of that. And, and uh, there's something special about that and something special about taking a group of guys and a group, an organization and people and, and saying, let's come together and try to go do something, you know, try to go win some games, try to accomplish something. And, and so, uh, so it would be hard to say that I wouldn't be a part of that in some form or fashion. Uh, in the next, you know, next few years. Josh McCown, really wonderful to talk to you. I've always wanted to uh, uh, have an extended conversation with you because, quite honestly, I really want America to know who you are Uh, because I I just think that, you know, I run into so many players and so many people in this game, and they're, they're great people. They're really far more great people than there are the others. But I just think you're a unique person with a really unique perspective on things. And I'm glad I was able to talk to you today. Well, I appreciate it. It means a lot to me. Um, I grew up with trash bags under my bed full of Sports Illustrated. Oh, that's cool. Full of them. And so to sit here with you is an honor because to see your name on there and and there was no, you know, in my mind, there was no chance I'd be sitting, you know, let alone be talking on a podcast with, with, uh, with you. So it's an honor. Thanks a lot, Josh. Have a, have a great rest of the year. Thank you. You're listening to the MMQB Podcast. Hey guys, do you hate going shopping for clothes but still want to look good? Bombfell is an easier way for men to get better clothes. Fully personalized, every piece has been handpicked for you by your own stylist. Your stylist will email you his or her selections, after which you'll have 48 hours to make any changes or even cancel altogether. You're in total control. Then, when you receive the clothes, you have seven days to tell us what you want to keep, and you can send the rest back. Completely flexible. 
You can receive clothes when you want and can pause or cancel at any time. Here's how it works. First, you sign up. Tell us about yourself, your measurements, your style preferences. Set your budget limits that you're comfortable with. Then, set up your order. Tell us what you want in your next order, like two button-downs and a pair of jeans, and schedule when you want it, or let us surprise you. Then you'll get a preview email. Your stylist will put together your clothing picks and send you a preview email. Cancel or change anything you don't like, and we'll ship after 48 hours otherwise. Then the best part, you get your clothes. You have seven days to try them on after your shipment's delivered before we charge your card. Pay for what you keep and return the rest. Shipping is free both ways. So what are you waiting for? Just go to bombfell.com slash king. Plus, you'll get $25 off your first purchase. Just visit bombfell.com slash king. That's B-O-M-B-F-E-L-L dot com. Bombfell, open and close. And now a conversation I did in training camp over the summer with Gil Brandt, who was the founding personnel guy with the Dallas Cowboys in 1960 and who has been in football since most of us have been alive. Back on the MMQB podcast with Peter King, fortunate to be joined uh, by Gil Brandt. Obviously, many of you know him today as the NFL.com, NFL Network, uh, Sirius XM, NFL Radio, NFL Maestro. But if that's all you know Gil as, you're missing quite a bit of NFL history. Gil Brandt, when I was six months old, was working as a scout in the NFL and later went on to be the architect of the great Dallas Cowboys teams of the 60s and 70s. So, uh, Gil, it's really a pleasure to talk to you. We're sitting here uh, in Oxnard, California at Cowboys training camp. I'm not positive when this will air, but we're sitting here, and I wonder, when you come and watch training camp today, is it absolutely night and day, or is football football? Uh, Peter, it's night and day. Uh, you know, the, uh, the old training camp was uh, uh, you started 17 days before the first preseason game. Wow. And, uh, and uh, what you got as a player, uh, you, you got room and board, and, and that was it. And uh, you would have two days almost every day. Uh, and even when you once started playing the six preseason games, you would have a couple days of pre of, of two days the following two weeks. Wow. And so is it better? Is it worse? Oh, I think it's better right now. I think people are so much better prepared. You know, we started, as I said, 17 days ahead of uh, the first preseason game uh, because you had to work for about two weeks to get guys in shape. And uh, what they do today on the first day of, of training camp is off the charts simply because of the OTAs and all of the things that they do in the off season. Gil, what describe what scouting for football players was like in the late fifties? And t- tell me, because I don't even know this story. How did you get into it at the first? Well, scouting for players uh, was about as haphazard as it could be. Uh, you know, people would. Uh, 
go to the draft. And, and one of the things that they did at the draft uh, was to make sure that they had enough rolls of quarters. Uh, and what they would do is a team uh, needed a left tackle. And they'd call Pappy Lewis, who was a coach at uh, uh, West Virginia at the time, and said, you know, Pappy, we need a left tackle. Or who's the best left tackle available? And he said, well, there's a guy named Garbage Pale Murphy at uh, Temple that's pretty good. This is a true name. <laughs> that was not a name, Garbage yes, Pale Murphy. Really, it is a true name. And he was a first-round draft pick uh, is what he was. But uh, uh, we had guys uh, that were drafted uh, three times uh, because they weren't eligible the first two times. Uh, it, it was uh, we had guys that uh, people thought were six three, and they were five ten and a half, uh, is what they were. And uh, when I first started working for the Cowboys full time, what year? Nineteen sixty. And uh, how did you get hired? Well, Tex Schramm. I worked for the Rams uh, on a part time basis, and Tex Schramm called me in October, and he said. Uh, uh, I got a job for you. I said, Tex, I don't know anything about television because Tex was running CBS Sports at the time. And he said, no, we're going to have a team in Dallas. And he said, I want to hire you. I said, well, Where did not, you live? I lived in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. But uh, let, let, me, let me tell you the first trip I took to sign somebody. Uh, it, with Tex, everything was, it's real easy, it's real easy. Uh, so the first, well, first of all, he said, now make sure you steal all the stuff from the Rams that you can, so we know which free agents to go after. And um, so, did you bring your notes from the Rams? Uh, I had it in my head. <laughs> and and uh, what took place was is that uh, uh, we went, we went to New York and we had to mignograph contracts. And uh, so uh, the first place we were going to go to was Dartmouth University, a guy named Jake Krauthammel. Now Krauthammel uh, was the first round pick of the L.A. Chargers. In the uh, AFL. In the AFL. And uh, Bob Blackman was a the coach there. And as always with Tex, he's, it's, it'll be really easy. You know Blackman and from the Rams days and so forth. I said, yes, sir, right. So I went up to uh, uh, 19 Lime Road in Hanover, New Hampshire, for this easy sit-down signing, except I found out one thing. Frank Lee was there for, ahead of me at the same time. And so, and I, Frank Leahy was—he he was the general manager of, of the, the Chargers, of the LA Chargers. And so uh, we had to sit down, and I won this bidding contest. Uh, I paid him seventy-five hundred dollars, no bonus, no anything else. And I couldn't wait to get out of the out of the uh, Bob Blackman's home at Nineteen Lime Road to go to the White Bear Inn and call Tex and CBS and tell him we just signed our first player. How much do we pay? How much do we pay? I said, Tex, you have to understand. How much did we pay? I said, $7,500. He said, geez, I can't trust you. We'll be broke. <laughs> uh, and and uh, so. Uh, That's the first player you signed for the Dallas Cowboys. Right. Jake, Jake Krauthammel. Yep. Who went on to be a really good coach. Yes, he did. An athletic yeah. director also. Yeah. And uh, and so. Uh, but anyway, uh, that, that year, uh, I think I signed about 25 guys. And uh, one of the great things was, well, what's the name of your team? Well, we don't have a name yet. We're just Dallas. And, of course, we didn't get a franchise until February. So we had all these guys signed without uh, as That was in January of 1960? That was in De November of 1959. Wow. And uh, so that's kind of my start in this business. So uh, 
I'd love to hear your favorite story about the war between the AFL and the NFL, and how did you, how did you hide guys? There's, it's sort of legendary about how so many people got hidden over the years. So tell me a good AFL NFL story. Well, there's a lot of stories and a lot of good ones. And uh, Harry Shue uh, was a Memphis State player, and uh, we had these babysitters. And so uh, we would tell the babysitter, uh, you you're assigned to Harry Shue. And it was Hamp Poole, who'd been a head coach in the National Football League. And uh, Hamp took him to uh, Las Vegas. Uh, they, they had carte blanche, take you wherever you want to go, give me an American Express card and just charge it. And uh, we got a, we got a, 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 a call from, uh, from Hamp, boo, boo, I lost my shoe. And what happened is the Raiders found him and signed him. Uh, is what in they, Vegas? In Vegas. Wow. Uh, and uh, it, it, was, uh, it was totally unbelievable, the stories we could go on for hours talking about it. But did you, was there any honor among thieves? No honor among thieves. No honor among, and, and, and there was no honor among ourselves. Uh, in, in, in other words, if, uh, if we hid somebody, uh, which we did uh, more than one occasion, uh, we didn't tell the Philadelphia Eagles or the Washington Redskins or anybody. Where where would you hide somebody? You'd actually go to Vegas and put them up in a room or something. Everywhere, put them up everywhere. They one 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 of them went to Hawaii. Mm-hmm. One player went to Hawaii, and if if Williams Clancy Williams of Washington State, uh, what was he? He was a defensive back. Nineteen sixty. I, I think fifty nine for the sixty draft. Okay, I, I, it no, it might have been sixty for the sixty one draft. And uh, what happened with him, uh, they kind of kidnapped him right after the Washington-Washington State game. And uh, Who about, kidnapped him? Uh, I think the Green Bay Packers did. Okay. And, uh, and everybody took him to these uh, places. Well, here's a poor kid that all he had was a pair of jeans and a shirt. And uh, now he's at five different cities is what it was. Uh, but it, just the stories are unbelievable. What was it like competing against Al Davis and the Raiders? Did you ever lose a player to Al? We didn't. Uh, we were very fortunate. Mel Renfro uh, was one of our uh, mutual draft picks that Al drafted. And uh, what happened with Renfro, I had uh, got to know him really well. Uh, in 1960, we had a training camp in Forest Grove, Oregon. And in those days, uh, a player wasn't committed to a school uh, until he actually went to school. Uh, in other words, he had to enroll, and then he was committed. And uh, so in the second round, in the second round, uh, we sent a doctor. We held up the draft for six hours while we sent a doctor uh, while we, to, to uh, Eugene, Oregon, to check Dr. Wilcox, to check and see if uh, Mel Renfer was okay. And after I talked to Mel, uh, uh, I said, Mel, uh, I want to meet you after we drafted him. I want to meet you right uh, tomorrow morning in Portland. I'll be there. I'll be at the airport. And I said, yeah, okay. And sure enough, I got there, and Mel uh, was right there at the steps of the airport. And as you know, a great player, Hall of Fame player, one of the great corners of all time. And uh, met him there. He was standing there. Went down and uh, signed him. And yet, in those days, you had to have the contract verified or witnessed. And uh, so here's an Oregon guy. I said, we'll stop at Oregon State and get it done at Oregon State. And we witnessed the contract at Oregon State for Mel Renfrew, who, who uh, also, Al, had also drafted. 
It's the MMQB Podcast. State Farm knows that for football fans, your car and home are more than just stuff. They're some of your most valuable possessions. The things you've worked hard for and made a lifetime of memories with. Whether it's the truck that gets you to every tailgate, or the place where you watch your favorite team with your favorite people. But life can be a real tough opponent. That's why when it comes to finding the right home and auto insurance, you need a strong defense. A seasoned pro like State Farm. Because they understand it's more than just a car or a house. So why not give it the protection it deserves? It's just one more way they're here to help life go right. See how they can help you by talking to a State Farm agent today. With Gil Brandt, uh, Gil, uh, as of now, when I look back on your career, one of the things that I always think of is sort of how you made scouting modern, okay? And I wonder, when you look back, what are you particularly proud of that you added to the scouting community? Well, I think what we did is... When, when we started, uh, they had a form, and some people would say, this dog can hunt. That means he could play. Uh, pick him in the first round. Uh, you know, there was no rhyme or reason. And, uh, you know, we got into the computer business in 1961. And so we had to do everything to help the computer evaluate the player. And the first thing we had to do was find out what a player was made of. And there were six characteristics that were foreign to every player. And then there was position specifics. And, you know, it was, so we, we, we came up with a form that covered the waterfront, so to speak. And then a grading system. And the grading system uh, is still used by teams today and uh, very successful teams today. So, in other words, you would have guys go out to campuses at that time, or would they simply cover games or watch film? We would have them go to campuses. Myself, I I, I probably went to uh, 50 campuses. A year? uh, In 1960. Wow. And and let me say it to you this way. Yeah. Uh, I'll share a story with you. It's one of the greats of all time. Uh, I went to Virginia Union, and the head coach was Tom Harris, and they had a running back, honest name, Hezekiah Braxton III. And I went there on a Thursday, and I asked Coach Harris if I could watch practice. And he politely told me that uh, all of these players at Virginia Union was in the ROTC, and they didn't practice on Thursday. And I said, well, do you have any film I can look at? And, and uh, he said, no. He said, we're on a very limited budget here at Virginia Union, and all our film goes to our next opponent. And I said, well, tell me a little bit about Hezekiah. He said, well, Hezekiah is the second greatest player in the world, and I'm not sure he's not better than Jimmy Brown. (laughs) And I said, well, is he pretty tough? Is he tough? He said, Hezekiah was responsible for 17 stretcher cases plus numerous untold that lumps off the field under their own power. And I said, do you think he could make our team? He said, I'm personally familiar with your team. He is twice as good as L.G. Dupre, who was a player we had gotten in the, in the equalization draft from Baltimore. And I said, well, would he make our team? He said, it would take him two days. I said, why two days? He said, man, the first day is picture day, isn't it? 
<laughs> Did you take Hezekiah? No, we didn't. Uh, <laughs> but I think he was drafted in the ninth round. I mean, he was a specimen. You know, he was yeah. a six foot three, two hundred twenty-three pound running back. But uh, he wasn't very good. wasn't good enough to play in the NFL. Gil, why was Tom Landry great? Had a uh, had an unbelievable understanding of everything. You know, he could have been a bank president. He could have been a senator. He could have been a president of the United States, and, and he was flexible. You know, a lot of times in the old days, people said, why should we get a computer? We won, this, we won, won the NFC championship or NFL championship. We don't need it. And Tom was for everything. And, uh, you know, so many innovations that he brought uh, into this league uh, simply because of his intelligence uh, and his work ethic. The one player that I've never heard the story of why you ended up with him, why you drafted him, and why you waited for him is Roger Staubach. So what happened with Staubach that convinced you he was worth the wait at the Naval Academy? Well, here, here's what happened. Uh, SMU and Navy played in, uh, in Dallas uh, after his junior year. And he had gone to, Ros- to uh, New Mexico Military Academy in Roswell and was eligible. In those days, you could draft red shirts. And uh, it was around, the, uh, around 2 o'clock in the morning in Chicago at the Sheraton Chicago Hotel. And Tex Schramm and myself were there. Uh, everybody else was gone. They were, they, they, we drafted during the season. In fact, I think we played Cleveland that week. So Tom was there uh, for our first pick, uh, which turned out to be Renfro. And he was there and uh, left, and so Tex and I, uh, you know, Tex was always, who's the fastest guy? And we drafted a guy named Bob Hayes. Who's the most exciting guy? And we drafted Roger Staubach. So uh, we drafted him. And then I almost screwed up the deal uh, because I went to Cincinnati to talk to the parents while he was on a cruise. And uh, I said, uh, you know, uh, is Roger, you know, if Roger got married, he probably wouldn't have to go into the service. And, uh, and that was the worst thing I could have said. I mean, I just about screwed the whole deal up. You mean because the parents thought that would be sacrosanct for him not to serve? Right, right. Right. So did he serve for four years? Yes, and he came to training camp every year. He came out here on his R&R, and he would practice during the day, and his wife, Marianne, and he lived in a, down at the hotel. And so was it, was it difficult? to see Roger Staubach practice knowing that you couldn't have him? Yeah, it was. It really was. Yeah. It was, but it, uh, it turned out to be pretty good. Finishing with Gil Brandt, Gil, of all your years in football, do you ever wonder what you would have done with your life if you weren't in the football business? I probably would have been a physical education uh, teacher is probably what I would have done. But uh, thank God for football because it's been great for me. Gil Brandt, really appreciate you joining me on the podcast. And uh, it's been so good to get to know you and to siphon off some of that uh, reservoir of knowledge. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks to my guest, Josh McCown of the New York Jets and football impresario Gil Brandt. If you enjoyed these conversations, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes in the MMQB series, such as my conversations with John Elway, Tom Brady, and Adam Schefter. You can find these on the MMQB.com 
on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. You can also hear the MMQB Podcast with Peter King on Sirius XM Radio every Saturday morning at 7 Eastern on Mad Dog Sports Radio, Sirius XM Channel 82. Thanks to the fine folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thanks, of course, to my sponsors, State Farm, Bombfell, and ZipRecruiter. Please support them the way they support this podcast. And I'll see you next week.